Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. There's so much reporting uh, on the 2020 primary and presidential nominations in general, uh, but often a lot more noise than, than real wisdom. David Carroll, by contrast, is a political scientist at the University of Maryland. He is a scholar on party systems, party nominations, how politicians evolve in response to nominating contests, how the process evolved over time. So we really talked to him. It's a long conversation, but it's about the sort of deep history of how the nominating system works, how it has changed over time. And, and I think if you listen to this, you're going to really understand what's happening in 2020 whole new way. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, and my guest today is David Carroll. He's an associate professor of government and political science at the University of Maryland, also the author of a, a new book, uh, Red, Green, and Blue, uh, about uh, environmentalism and the sort of partisan divide, uh, as well as a, a couple of other books. Um, uh, he's a, a co-author of a book about the primary process, uh, and that is something that I think is on a lot of people's minds these days. Um, so welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be with you today. Fantastic. Um, so, you know, uh, we were just chatting sort of b- before the show but uh, about this, and, and I think it's important for people to hear, which is I think most people who know a little American political history are aware that the primary system has not always been with us and that before there was something else. And the phrase smoke-filled rooms is often used, and there's maybe some sense that there were party bosses and they were influential. Uh, but, like, what does that actually mean? Like, who was in the rooms? Like, what what yeah. was going on? Well, the process evolved in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, initially, parties nominated candidates uh, via congressional caucus. So it was almost a quasi-parliamentary arrangement. By the mid-19th century, the conventions that we know today existed. Uh, they were a little smaller, but they existed. And there were hundreds of delegates, if not thousands. But uh, most of the delegates, unlike today, were not chosen in competitive, open, uh, very public settings like primaries in the caucuses that we know today. They were chosen at meetings that were not so well attended, that were dominated by local party organizations. Uh, so when the delegates went to the convention, many cases they weren't pledged to an individual candidate or they were pledged to a nominal candidate from their state, a so-called favorite son. Uh, and uh, so at the convention, it was typically the case that when the, when the meeting opened, uh, it wasn't clear who the nominee would be. It was kind of like the election of a pope. 
Um, it might it might take uh, multiple well without the divine inspiration, but but it might take a few ballots and so a few re- days. Real work was happening. Yes, real work was happening. Uh, wheeling and dealing was happening. That's why people talk about the smoke filled rooms uh, because hundreds of delegates can can vote and can register preference, but they can't deliberate and discuss. It's too many people. Plus, they weren't all free agents. M- often they were there because they were representatives of a state uh, a local party organization, and they were followers of a local political leader. So they were there in many cases uh, to to carry out orders. Um, so it wasn't often clear how strong candidates would were before the convention and the early balloting because there weren't primaries. Um, or then in the early 20th century, there weren't that many primaries. So on the early ballots, people saw uh, how much support candidates had. And sometimes then off stage, not in public view, there were extensive discussions of who was more broadly acceptable, uh, what kind of deal could be struck. And that's what people mean by favorite son, I mean, excuse me, by smoke-filled rooms, and that senators, governors, party chairmen, uh, in those days it was men, it was white men, had these meetings. And the most famous one uh, is in 1920 in Chicago uh, at the Republican convention. And Part of the reason political scientists often are kind of nostalgic for these events is parties are, in the United States where we have a two-party system, parties are very diverse. Uh, they, mm-hmm. they always contain elements that are difficult to reconcile. And sometimes a candidate comes came into a convention or today comes into the nomination process with a strong following but also off-putting for many others. That kind of a candidate is dangerous for a party. A party wants to find a candidate who is broadly acceptable, who can hold the party together so they can form a united front and win the election. Part of the context of this is that the parties themselves, I mean, they're still diverse, but they used to be more sort of federated, yeah. right? I mean, the, the different state party organizations would be more meaningfully distinct from yes. one another than, yes. than they are now. And everything, of course, you didn't have the internet. You didn't have television. You didn't. So media, right, people's engagement with the world was more sort of fragmented yes. and, and localized. That's right. There was much more local media than there is today. Any sizable city would have uh, two, maybe two morning papers and two evening papers, for example. But it was much harder to, you know, if you were living in Dubuque, to read the Washington Post, mm-hmm. it was pretty almost impossible. Uh, you could, you know, now you can just read it online. You can read the Guardian online, mm-hmm. and you know. But uh, so yes, there were local party organizations uh, that were based on patronage in cities and states, and there was in some. Although there's great diversity now, there was great intra-party diversity then even more than today. The difference in between a Mississippi Democrat and a Massachusetts Democrat in 1940 or 1960 is maybe greater than today. Right. There just aren't so many Mississippi Democrats today. But. <laughs> well, but I mean, I think it's important, right? Because, you know, right now there aren't very many Democrats in, say, um, South Dakota. Right. Right. But the ones who are there yes. are sort of conventional white liberals, to an extent, that's true, yeah. Right, right. whereas back in the day, right. you know, Democrats in Mississippi yeah. were, like, very different yes. from Northern Democrats, yes. right? They had right. a different ideology, they had a different yeah. program, right. they had a different social constituency. Right, right, that's right. And that was a part of the reason the Democratic Party had, uh, you know, difficulty um managing this coalition for a long time, and it shook out. And eventually, of course, they lost a lot of the white right. uh, Southerners because this was an unsustainable um, 
alliance. Uh, there were contradictions within it that eventually exploded it. So in these old conventions, um, uh, the, the smoke-filled room was a, 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 me a mechanism. So in 1920, at the Republican convention, uh, we, I don't know if we have to get into, but there were uh, leading candidates who were very divisive. Um, mm -hmm. And months before the convention, a Republican political operative was quoted as saying, well, Governor Loudon has support, General Wood has support, they can't unite the party. At some point in the Blackstone Hotel at two or three o'clock in the morning, gentlemen will retire to a room and they will they will say, who can who can we get together behind? Who can bring us together? And they will turn their attention to uh, Senator Harding from Ohio. Uh -huh. And that is totally what happened. Right. It was kind of like Babe Ruth pointing into this <laughs> call, you know, pointing to the stand. I can't do this as a podcast, but uh, pointing to the stands where he was going to hit the home run. It was kind of like that. So it became a really famous anecdote. And you see, I mean, you see a contrast with that today, right? So right now you have, if you look at the polls at least, right, yeah. um, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders yeah. are sort of at the top. And Biden is on the conservative end of the field and Sanders is on the left end of the field. And it seems like if you had a meeting, yeah. right, people could talk it over and say, okay, we're going to get somebody who is not as left wing as Bernie Sanders, but has a more progressive record than yes. Joe Biden, yes. and we're and off is, to the races. And is maybe younger than both of them. Right, right. And that's why, like, a million pundits, or at least people who are grumpy about the nomination process, keep doing takes about Amy Klobuchar Absolutely. and Cory Booker. Um, and and there have been a million iterations of, of these columns, and it has the logic of this is what you would do in a in a meeting, right? Because when we say Sanders and and Biden are on top, they're polling in like the high 20s, right? They're mm -hmm. not like dominating. No. And so it seems like you should try to split the difference. Yeah, it, but it is difficult because our the, as we're as we're talking about our our political institutions have evolved and uh, they don't make that as easy as they used to. Um so uh, it's a good parallel um, that they're both I, – I think, you know, polling shows that actually most Democratic voters like both Joe Biden right. and Bernie Sanders yes. and Elizabeth Warren. So it might not be <laughs> fatal for the Democrats, right. but it's true that candidates who had strong appeal but to very distinctive segments of the party are not ideal, uh, you, you know, traditionally, and someone who has a more broad appeal – uh, is what parties are looking for. In the old days, they didn't always succeed either. Mm -hmm. Sometimes candidates broke through in different eras. William James Bryan could never unite the Democratic Party. I mean, he, he was strong enough to win the nomination, but he repelled people in the Northeast. He repelled kind of the more conservative, business-oriented Democrats. Um, Al Smith, uh, the first Catholic nominee, repelled uh, rural and especially Southern Democrats and lost states that the Democrats uh, would always win in any right, other. So, so if, if people don't know this, right, so so William Jennings Bryan comes in in, what, 1896? 1896. Right, on a, um, what was considered at the time, radical monetary yes. platform. And he's a sensation, right? I mean, very much the, the model of a, a modern outsider candidate. People really liked his speeches, yeah. uh, but like a big swath of the Northeastern Democratic Party, yeah. this this silver thing right. was anathema, and they they fielded like a breakaway yes. candidate, yeah. he, he, Alton the, Parker. Yeah. So there was a gold Democratic ticket. Right. Um, uh, the candidate was Palmer. Uh, he got very few votes, but like many traditionally Democratic newspapers, and newspapers were very important in politics then, they defected to McKinley. Mm -hmm. Um 
Parker was nominated. Brian was still nominated again because he had a lot of grassroots support and he lost by a wider margin four years later. But then in 1904, the gold conservative Democratic wing reestablished control and they nominated Parker, who was a, but, and he lost uh, very badly also. In a different, slightly different way, <laughs> right. but he lost very badly. But he wasn't the candidate in 1896. Sure, yes, so, right. And okay. then Brian was nominated again, right? Brian was nominated yet again in 1908 and lost uh, by a still a greater margin. No, uh, he, I mean, just to, I, I think this just makes the point that it's like it. It's not like the old system always yeah. delivered on the goal no. of, like, strongly electable nominations. No. I mean, the idea that a guy today, whatever you might say about the current system, the idea that you would lose, yeah. then lose a second time by a bigger margin, and then get nominated a third time. Yes. I, yes. I think the voters would actually not do no, that. I think the vo- no, I think the voters would not do that. And uh, Smith is another example mm-hmm. um, uh, where— you know, it was clear that he was going to alienate a lot of people. but um, And then, you know, more recently, Barry Goldwater in mm-hmm. 1964, to get into kind of, you know, modernity, uh-huh. um, you know, he ran in primaries. There was television. I mean, it was black and white TV, but it's sort of, mm-hmm. you know, more more like our own era. Uh, he also, people saw him coming. And they saw that he would be a, a really problematic general election candidate. And uh, uh, they couldn't stop him. Um, and he was so so we shouldn't romanticize the old system in the sense that it always worked uh, to uh, generate a consensus candidate. Sometimes there were divisions that couldn't be papered over uh, that, and that sometimes happened and that usually was uh, bad news for that party. Mm-hmm. So so by the, the 60s, right, um, when, when Goldwater becomes the nominee, but even before that, when, when Kennedy wins in 1960, yeah. most states, don't have primaries then. Right. But it seems like the primaries are very important. Like Goldwater won yeah. the vast majority of the primaries. Kennedy, it was considered, at least if you if you read books yeah. um, about this period, they, they tend to assert yeah. that winning in heavily Protestant states in the primary was important to demonstrating that this wouldn't be Al Smith Redux. Right, right. Um, and that, you know, if, if he had lost in West Virginia, say, maybe he maybe he wouldn't have won, even though the primaries weren't numerically decisive. Right. Most of, so primaries were established in the early 20th century. It's a progressive era reform, uh, but they aren't enough to win because, in this era, because most of the delegates are not at stake in the primaries. And, I, and we should mention that in some states uh, that, had primaries, as I was talking before about the smoke-filled room, the delegates were actually captured by somebody who was a local, a state party leader called uh, who ran as what was called a favorite son. He was not a serious candidate for president. He wanted to be control the delegation, to go to the convention, to be a player, maybe to get the second spot on the ticket, maybe to get a position in the cabinet, maybe just to ensure that the nominee was someone acceptable to his uh, state party who wouldn't cause problems for them. So this is like the governor of yeah. Pennsylvania, the governor of Pennsylvania runs in the Pennsylvania primary. Yeah. He gets a ticket full of his guys. And the understanding is he's going to go to the convention and he's going to use that as leverage. That's right. And, and typically there were several such candidates. And so that meant it was difficult for somebody to amass enough delegates in the primaries. Uh, those, those, the old norm was do not challenge a favorite son in his state because, first of all, you will probably lose and then you'll make an enemy. Maybe 
uh, try and stay in good terms with him, eventually he may come over to your side. That's starting to change in the 1960s because of television, because candidates can become very well known. So people who want to be favorite sons in some cases back down in the face of a challenge by somebody like JFK, who's charismatic and who could run ads in their state. But uh, yes, so the primaries are, are used by some candidates that need to prove a point. The famous case you mentioned already, JFK, runs in the West Virginia primary in order to uh, allay concerns that he's not electable because he can't appeal uh, to Protestants. Uh, other people entered primaries to prove a point and they didn't succeed. Wendell Wilkie in 1944 wanted to show he could win isolationist or formerly isolationist voters in Wisconsin. He failed and that ended his political career. But it was still possible as in the 50s and 60s to be nominated without this running in primaries. And that's very alien to listeners today. But Adlai Stevenson was really drafted in 1952. He didn't run in any primaries. And uh, the delegates were given to him by the party organizations in various states that thought he would be a good candidate. Uh, Senator Kefauver, uh, who ran in primaries, was anathema to the party organization. They thought he was a loose cannon. He wasn't for the party. He was for himself. He won a bunch of primaries, and they said, no, thank you. Right. So, right? so Stevenson was like a guy who was acceptable to the Southern party organizations, but also Northern liberals liked him, and people felt he had been, as governor, a— like a reliable yes. actor. So they they would just pick him. Like they, yeah. they didn't like Kefauver. Yeah. That's right. And and um and that wasn't seen as problematic. The political culture was a little bit different. People did denounce bossism and things so on from so uh, that's why there were part primaries in the first place in the progressive era. But this was I mean Stevenson obviously lost that election, but I don't think it's because he didn't, you know, run uh, in primaries, actually, running in primaries was a sign of weakness. You had something to prove, or uh-huh. you, or the or the party wouldn't elite wouldn't support you. Uh, so so you know, Tom Dewey ran three times. The first time he had to run in pri- primaries in '48, he had to run in primaries in '44. When he was really strong, he was the governor of New York, and he was drafted. Uh-huh. Of course, the draft is always phony in the sense that behind the scenes, these candidates are always constantly maneuvering. But the old ethos, going back to George Washington, was the reluctant candidate. You, you know, you you answer the call of duty of your party and country, but you personally have no ambition. You just would rather stay in your farm. And so, as much <laughs> as po- as much as possible, you don't. Um, look like you wanted. That when you mentioned Brian before, one of the remarkable things about Brian is his his campaign, his nomination in 1896, is based on this famous cross of gold speech that he gave at the Democratic convention. People say grown men wept. Well, how could he give that? He gave that speech because he technically wasn't a candidate. Because the ethos was candidates don't go to the conventions uh-huh. because the convention is a den of iniquity, right? You as a candidate, if you went to the convention, that would suggest you were seeking the nomination, uh-huh. which is today it sounds ridiculous, but this is a different ethos. So Brian technically was supporting another candidate. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's kind of like this all about Eve situation where right. there's an older candidate who he usurps. And so he makes this speech and he's at the convention, and that norm that even the nominee doesn't make an acceptance speech does not begin to erode really until FDR uh, in the 30s. And that's part of the story. By then there's radio. Uh, radio doesn't right away change things, but it, but, but, but that's part of the reason 
um, that the, this this norm erodes. I think he also wanted to show he was a man of action, even though he had polio. So he flew to the convention from Albany to Chicago and made a dramatic appearance. Uh, now the convention normally is just about the acceptance speech. It's right. all a backdrop. <laughs> but this is, you know, the, the creation of a national broadcast media is important to a number of these Absolutely. trends because it's now the, the convention is an opportunity to get on television, right? Absolutely. And you wouldn't want to waste that opportunity on showing a bunch of random people doing whatever, right? right. It's like, so it's considered important to have things settled as much as possible in advance yes. so you can plan out right. a good program, right. right? And then also you were talking about the the favorite sons and yes. their decline. And it's today, of course, we take it for granted that, you know, you could pick any state and people are more familiar with the president of the United States than with the governor of that right. state. And they're probably even more familiar with the top candidates in national politics. Uh, And that's because of television, right? When you had localized media, the local governor would be a better known person than some factional ideologue guy from another corner of the universe. But JFK can say, right, like he is an iconic figure to American Catholics all over the country, right? Right, And like, who cares about Governor (laughs) What's-His-Name? That's that's right. So even before the post-68 reforms, um, some of these traditional practices were in decline because of factors like uh, revolution in uh, in media uh, and, and a more, somewhat more informed electorate, I think. And what happens in 68, right, is you, you test the rules yeah. in a way they kind of hadn't been in the past few cycles. That's right. Uh, so the, the, there is a very unusual circumstance. And we should say we're talking about the Democratic Convention in Chicago in 1968. Uh, um, so these broader social trends came together with a kind of short-term crisis. Uh, uh, President Johnson was challenged for renomination by uh, Eugene McCarthy and then uh, by uh, Bobby Kennedy. And he surprised people in March of the election year uh, at the end of a long speech, he said, oh, and I'm not going to seek or accept my party's nomination for president in 1968. Uh, and and March is so late. March right? is That's late. That's your point. March like, is really late. Like well, it's this, not March yet. This was after the New Hampshire primary. Mm-hmm. and prob- So um, it was very late. Uh, and most of the, almost all the primary filing deadlines had passed. Um, Johnson was actually – the plan was for him to be renominated mostly by um, – delegations nominally pledged to favorite sons because he was going to run the Rose Garden renomination strategy. He's the president of the United States, plus he's a wartime leader. He's not going to go kissing babies in New Hampshire. He's above that. You know, he's a commander-in-chief and and not presidential. What's presidential has changed. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) (laughs) But but then he withdrew, and Hubert Humphrey, his vice president, became the candidate of uh, the faction of the Democratic Party establishment that had supported Johnson— uh, and it was late for him to enter primaries. Uh, he uh, knew he could win support from uh, state delegations controlled by state party organizations uh, led by leaders. The most famous example, of course, is Mayor Daley of Chicago, who was also the host of the convention. 
the party was very divided over Vietnam. Humphrey was very awkwardly and unhappily um, wedded to President Johnson's position on Vietnam, which is to stay. And then one of the major candidates was dead. Was dead the night he won the California primary. against. Uh, there was a duel because Humphrey wasn't in the primaries, really. So there was a duel between Kennedy and McCarthy. Kennedy won, and that evening he was assassinated uh, and at the convention, there's still this division. Uh, a lot of the delegates who are Bobby Kennedy delegates, because there was a, a bitter division between the Kennedy and McCarthy people, not really based on philosophy, but the fact that the McCarthy people, McCarthy took the risk of challenging Johnson when Kennedy, who, uh, and, and McCarthy had not been seen as a, re, you know, like a realistic presidential aspirant, mm -hmm. but he, the anti-war people were looking for somebody to pick up the torch, and he finally did. Kennedy had been thinking, I'll run in 1972. I can't beat Johnson. But then when he sees that someone else is running and getting, you know, getting the anti-war uh, publicity, then he jumps in. And of course, he is much better known than McCarthy and glamorous and Kennedy and everything. And so the McCarthy people feel really like he was an opportunist and he just jumped in. Right. And so even at the convention, these divisions exist, even though it's not about the war. They both want to end the war. So um, Senator, uh, Senator George McGovern, who we hear more about later, he became this candidate of the Kennedy forces at the convention, or at least some of them. Right. And they were, the big thing that everyone remembers is that there were huge protests at the convention and that they were repressed brutally by the Chicago police, who, of course, reported to Mayor Daley, who was the host of the convention and the leader of the biggest local party organization in the country, the Cook County Democratic Party, and a supporter of Johnson and eventually Humphrey. So this division in the party, now some of the protesters, I would say, were beyond Democrats. They were radicals. Sure. They were not, you know, but people inside the convention hall who are a little more mainstream had some sympathy with the anti-war protests. Some, some did, some right. didn't. And this was all playing out on national television. Conventions got amazing ratings then, because remember, this is the broadcast era. Right. There's three networks. They're all showing the conventions. Yeah. And instead of showing like, yeah. here we are, right. and, <laughs> ready and, to take on Nixon, you're seeing people yelling at each other, people, riots. Riots. Uh, famous journalists who are familiar to the television audience being dragged around and roughed up by the police. In some cases, Dan Rather was attacked. Uh, John Chancellor was uh, dragged out, I think, on the floor. And uh, the footage is incredible. People didn't announcing, famously, Senator Ribicoff, who was a supporter of McGovern at that point, denouncing Mayor Daley and said, if we if we had George McGovern as a president, we wouldn't have these Gestapo tactics in the streets of Chicago. Right. So this is like, you know, a Jewish senator accusing the leader of the, of the host of the Democratic Convention of, you know, right, Gestapo tactics. And you, it was incredibly bitter. And this is like a live national television and everyone is watching. And you get a nominee who hadn't run in yeah, the primaries, which, as you said, in 1952, that happened. Yeah, it And people weren't upset. But by right. 1968, yeah, I mean, I feel, it was an issue. Yeah, there's so many similarities to the situation. You have a president, in that case, Truman, not running for re-election. You have a, a land war in Asia not going so well, Korea instead of Vietnam. But the war wasn't divisive in the party. That's one thing. And so the fact that Stevenson hadn't run in primaries, well, he didn't represent something very different from um, Kefauver, except party sort of being more of a party regular. Mm -hmm. The other thing I think that happened, so television grew in between 52. Television is, is new. By 68, everyone has television. The war, the divisions in the war, and I think the other thing is in the intervening years, People had run in primaries. In 56, Stevenson, again challenged by Kefauver uh, and others, 
that time he had to run in primaries. He was not in as strong a position as he'd been 52. Mm -hmm. He ran in primaries. Uh, as we've discussed, JFK ran in primaries. Goldwater in 64 ran in primaries. So I think by 1968, people had kind of come to expect that this normally would happen. And I do think if, if LBJ had, had announced that he wasn't running maybe three or four months earlier, there might have been pressure on Humphrey. To, to get in. To right. get in. But it, because it was late, uh, he didn't uh, maybe feel as much pressure. Uh, he didn't do it. And so, yeah, this was a mess. Um, and the Democratic Party came out of that convention very divided. Um, the, the, the footage, you know, was terrible. I mean, one thing I should say, I mean, it's not clear from polling that Humphrey was the unpopular choice, sure. especially once Kennedy was assassinated. You know, McCarthy appealed to a limited segment. But the process, certainly, it was messy, and there was a legitimacy issue right. that emerged. Right. So, okay. So, with that, let, let's take a break, and then let's talk about what, what comes out of this. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. -P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. After 68, Democrats and, and Republicans sort of follow them, I guess, decide that this doesn't this doesn't work, right? That nominees who are picked without participating in primaries are not going to be seen as legitimate and that you want to have a more participatory process of some kind. That's 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 right. Um the of there were forces in the Democratic Party initially coming out of the McCarthy campaign that wanted reform. Humphrey agrees to ha having reforms uh, in part to hold the party together. He actually gained a lot of ground on Nixon towards the end of the election. Had he won, 
who knows how much of these reforms would have actually occurred in that time frame. I, I do think the trend was that way. Right. But so the uh, famous McGovern-Fraser Commission, McGovern, who was already the uh, stand-in for the Kennedy Forces, was a co-chair of a commission reforming the process. This is a Democratic Party commission. But the results of it, they did not mandate primaries. They said state parties have to conduct uh, processes that are open, that allow people to participate. One thing we should mention is sometimes in some delegates were actually chosen before the election year, maybe by some state party mm-hmm. committee or by poorly attended caucuses. And, you know, the year before the election, people didn't know that uh, LBJ was right. withdrawing. <laughs> people didn't know that Bobby Kennedy was running. They couldn't have selected these delegates with reference to candidates who didn't exist yet. But so that was like a pure agency model, though, right? It's like, yeah. you'll pick some guys. Yeah, yeah. And we'll you'll pick, say, okay, these are our delegates. They'll take care of it. And then they'll figure it out later. That's right. Right? Like, we're not making a choice about that's the candidates because right. there aren't even candidates. That's right. Yeah. Or there might be some, but not all yet. Yeah, that's right. So um, they, they mandate that the delegates actually have to be chosen in the election year, which today seems like, well, of course you do that. But that wasn't taken for granted. Right. Um, they uh, And the process had to be open and participatory. It could be a primary. It could be a caucus. You mentioned the Republican Party. They had a convention marked by some intrigue, but n- n- not this kind of disunity. The reason their process changed and changed importantly and in ways that uh, I don't think we'd have the current president without these reforms is because many uh, states created state governments, uh-huh. created primaries in response to the McGovern-Fraser Commission. Most state governments were controlled by Democrats. Um, some of them decided we'd rather not have a caucus so uh, that we, we will have a primary. And in America, this is very unusual in world, you know, comparative perspective, the primaries are run by state governments. Sure. So when more states in 1972 and 1976 create primaries, they create primaries for the Democrats and the Republicans. And um, as I say, I don't think we'd have Trump without this, but you see the effect on the Republican side pretty early. Reagan almost takes the Republican nomination away from Ford, the incumbent, in 1976. And I do not think that would have happened under a convention system. Right. You know? And I, and I think the, the the consensus, right, that, that everybody, most everybody looking at this uh, sees is that, at least in the short term, in the 70s, yeah. Like what happens here is that party establishments seem at risk of losing control, right? Yeah. That you have George McGovern nominated in 72 by the Democrats. Yeah. Obviously, Richard Nixon's an incumbent president, popular yeah. easily in 72. But then the incumbent president almost loses in 76. Yeah. Uh, to, to, uh, and then in 1980, yeah. this kind of like obscure – 76. Uh, sorry, uh, but but uh, right in 76, uh, Reagan almost beats Ford, Ford, and then in 1980, you have um, uh, Ted Kennedy yes. challenging Jimmy Carter. Right. So it's like yeah, and we should mention Jimmy Carter is a process is a product of this new system. Right. Uh, Jimmy Carter. So you know the, the the first nominations in the new system that are chaotic that you're describing, in, you know, were problematic for parties as we understand them in different ways. McGovern was uh, what we call a factional candidate, appealed basically to white liberals. Uh, couldn't unite the party. Uh, probably no Democrat could have beaten Nixon, uh, given that Nixon was bringing the troops home from Vietnam. There was an election year, good economy. He was a man of peace and went to China and so on. But N- McGovern really— I mean, shorthand is like 
the AFL-CIO yeah, didn't wouldn't endorse, endorse him. Well, the right? AFL-CIO wouldn't endorse him. He kicked Mayor Daley out of the convention uh, because the rules under the new rules of the party, the, the delegates weren't selected in a you know sufficiently kosher right. fashion. So you'd, you'd probably have lost no matter what Democrats yeah, but did. Not, but if you had a candidate who like, Labor union, all, all the normal Democratic Party pillars right. were like, yes, we're still Democrats. You you do better. Yes. Uh, and then in 76, Carter is different. He's more electable than McGovern, but he comes out of nowhere. And the new system, uh, things that we take for granted today, you know, that Iowa is very important and that New Hampshire is very important. Traditionally, that hadn't been true. Uh, so um, the properties of the new system were not uh, so well understood initially. People still thought in the 70s you could be drafted. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hubert Humphrey in 1976, there's much discussion about maybe he will be drafted at the convention uh, and and uh, or maybe he will enter the last primary or something like, a, you know, and that doesn't happen, but the, it just shows that people thought that was a realistic scenario. Jimmy Carter moved to Iowa, uh, basically spent more time in Iowa than most of his opponents who were senators or members of Congress, and he had this surprise Good showing, he you know, there, uh, coming out of nowhere, and he got all this media coverage. In those days, there was a month between Iowa and New Hampshire, so he became very visible, and then he parlayed that into a New Hampshire uh, victory, and it snowballed. Now, okay, he was elected, but he won the nomination without support from party elites, for the most part. Not because on issues he was so unacceptable, but just this was not how he did it. And then, and I mean, I, I think this— illustrates to me one of the big problems with the current system is that other than Carter, people had not perceived the Iowa caucus to be particularly important because Iowa is not like a large state. It's it's not like there's a lot of delegates there. And because it's a caucus rather than a primary, it doesn't even say that much, right? West Virginia didn't have a lot of delegates, but it, it demonstrated something about Kennedy. Whereas winning the Iowa caucuses, it's not clear at all what that what no. that says about anyone, but the media chose to make a big deal yes. out of Jimmy Carter's strong showing there, yes. which helped him win, which then created a norm in the media that the Iowa caucus is a big deal right. because it was a big deal before. So now it, it, it's it's very recursive. And I mean, this is uh, Nelson Polsby in his book about this. I mean, one of his big criticisms is that in effect – the power that was supposed to be ceded to the people right. has a lot been ceded to television news producers that's, that's, who are not necessarily wielding that power in a purposeful or principled way. Right. I think I think that's right. That's exactly what he said. He said the two dangers were factional candidates like McGovern would emerge and then candidates uh, would be promoted for whatever reason uh, by, by the media. And um, so Carter is an example of that. And why Polsby thought this was a bad thing. Remember, Carter, unlike McGovern, was elected. But then despite having a large Democratic majority in both houses of Congress, he was generally seen as an ineffective president. And one of the explanations for that was he got the nomination without working working with people in the party. So he didn't have those relationships. And then he, when he came to govern, he thought he he would he could just sort of do what he wanted. I mean, in Georgia, the governor, in most states, the governor is uh, knows a lot more, has much more staff than the state legislature, and can often sort of roll over them. It doesn't work that way with Congress. Uh, and Jimmy Carter was a product of this new system. He, he might not have been nominated uh, in the old days, or less likely anyway. Uh, and so Polsby uh, thought 
that the new system was not serving parties or the country well because it was producing nominees who couldn't hold the party together, who were unrepresentative like McGovern, or who couldn't govern uh, like Carter. Again, not to romanticize the old system, which sometimes produced right. failed presidents, uh, you know, or, or or nominees who couldn't hold the party together. But at least in the old days at the convention, there was more of a mechanism, the argument went, to try and get a good candidate. And, and it seemed in the 70s, like the, the the new open system no longer had those safeguards. Right. And and you see a version of that with, I mean, Trump is very different from Jimmy Carter in Almost so many, many, many way. ways. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that this was a candidacy that was very much lifted by media mm-hmm. clout and not necessarily even pro-Trump media, right? No. That there's, there's a difference between media organizations operating strategically and saying, this is, you know, we used to have party newspapers. Now we have Fox News. Right. And so you could say, okay, like, this is who we want. We're going to do coverage. Yeah. But Trump, it was just like, Trump was a good story. Trump yep. was good copy. CNN felt they got good ratings right. out of yeah. Trump things. Yeah. But it, it was incredibly valuable to him. But there was nobody saying, as a strategic matter, we would like to boost Donald Trump's No, fortune. even Fox News, even even Fox News and talk radio, you know, conservatives were initially, initially divided or hostile to him in many cases. That's right. No, it was the mainstream media, which I think for commercial and maybe being generous, journalistic reasons, decided <laughs> he was a good story. When I say commercial, there's this infamous quote by Les Moonves, then the CEO of CBS, right, said that he, he may not be good for America, but he's great for CBS. Right. Um, I mean, he got, uh, I, I know people studied this, and, and he got incredibly disproportionate coverage compared to all the other Republican primary candidates. He already started off better known as a celebrity. He's been a celebrity for 30 years. Um and that, but then, then then he just got all the oxygen from the media. And, and it was, I mean, it was especially television. I mean, remember at Vox, you know, we were parceling out coverage assignments yeah. for Republicans because we had to write, you know, sort of bio, initial stuff about right. them. Um, and so we had, uh, she was a, one of the best interns we've ever had, but she was the intern on the politics team. <laughs> we gave <laughs> Trump because it wasn't a serious That's right. candidacy. That's right. Uh, but the calculus that the cable news producers made was different from that. And it was that Trump was a fun yeah. to put on the air. And so even though it wasn't viewed as a serious thing, they were gonna they were gonna do a lot of Trump. That's right. And, uh, you know, that, along with his pre-existing uh, fame, I think was a really important part of the story. There were substantive reasons also. There, there, there was, a, I think, a demand in the Republican Party for an anti-immigration candidate, right. and he saw that. So it wasn't all just a frivolous celebrity uh, phenomenon. There was, there was some something behind it. But yes, uh, and I think in the old days of the convention system, there's no way that Donald Trump would have been nominated. So it's really ironic to see that these kind of leftist protesters in the streets of Chicago, the ultimate result of their struggles is... Is Trump. There's a Trump. I mean, you know, <laughs> 40, you know, 12 years ago, people said it was Obama. Sure. You know, when he actually gave a speech, his acceptance speech in Grant Park in Chicago, in the same place where there were the protests. So, you know, in 2008, it looked like Barack Obama was the ultimate result of these reforms. <laughs> sure. But in 2020, it looks a little different. And Trump, you know, I I mean, as you point out, right, uh, we shouldn't deny that 
there was a real constituency for Trump and a, a sort of an issue content to it. But in the old system, you might have looked at that, at that as a Republican leader and said, okay, people want us to go in a much more anti-immigration direction. Yes. And then you either find somebody who has that record yeah. or, you know, you pull Scott Walker out of a hat and he's governor of Wisconsin. There's, yeah. There wasn't a lot of immigration yeah. content to his record, <laughs> but he could have given a speech yes, he about how immigrants are terrible and we need to build a wall if if, if that's what people wanted him to do. Yeah. And he would still say, okay, we've got a guy, like a real politician, a yeah. former congressional staffer. He's buddies with Paul Ryan. Like, he, this is a the party guy. And if the voters want us to be anti-immigration, we can be anti-immigration, but we don't need to hand it over that's right, to, to like this, this guy from television. This, this guy from television, this loose cannon who we can't control and whose behavior we can't predict and who, I mean, he, despite the fact that we're, you know, recording this when he's, you know, on trial in the Senate, um, he still worked out better for the Republicans than they had any right to expect. I mean, they thought he was, they were, they thought he was going to lose to Hillary Clinton. Right. Uh, and then they were very worried that he wouldn't be reliable on policy in office. And he mostly has been for them. But certainly it was a huge part. His nomination was a huge a party failure. They 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 thought that he would be a disaster for them, and yet they did not manage to stop him. And under the convention system, they certainly would have been able to. Uh, he he might not have uh, even run. What's interesting is that even though a lot of people really don't like Trump, yeah, and particularly the kind of people probably who listen to this podcast, <laughs> is as you say, it hasn't failed in the way you might have thought right. right it had he, he didn't lose right. the way humphrey did right. um or or mcgovern and he hasn't been a super effective president yeah but unlike jimmy carter he hasn't been like mired in arguments with his own party leadership yeah. he it, it was hard to get votes together for some of the stuff they wanted to do right. but he signed the main priorities that yeah. passed. He's appointed mostly people from the regular conservative network. And so even though his his candidacy has elements of both McGovern and Carter, it doesn't have those outcomes. No, I, I think part of that is because he has limited interest in policy. And he's, <laughs> it's been convenient for him to defer to McConnell on many things. And uh, of course, when you say he didn't fight with them, of course, he fought with them in kind of petty personal ways. I mean, we've yes. never had a president denouncing the uh, leader of his own party, which uh, Trump did on Twitter during the uh, healthcare debate. He denounced McConnell for being weak and failing. True. And but, 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 but that's epiphenomenal. You know, right. he, he uh, for the most part, right, he has just, you know, nominated the kind of judges they've wanted. He signed the tax cut bill. He would have signed the health care bill. And I don't, he certainly, I don't think he was particularly helpful in either case, but I don't think it's actually his fault. I think it's very hard to repeal a program uh, once it's instituted and once there are a lot of beneficiaries. Right. People have long books about how you can't do that. Right. So and I don't think it's just like, I'm not sure that a President Rubio would have gotten um, you know, Obamacare repealed. Um, things would have been a little bit less chaotic in general and, you know, more decorous. But but no, he's Trump has been better than they probably had a right to expect from their standpoint. I'm not uh, endorsing. But he's, yeah, I mean, he, he, he is a product of this new, of this new system uh, and he's unimaginable 
Earlier in American history, he would have had to run, I think, third party the way Ross Perot, mm -hmm. who also has some, there's some parallels there between right. them, uh, did. And I just think, uh, but before before the post-68 reforms, I do think Trump could have, if there was an, an opening on issues, I think Trump could have, he, he did want to run he was 10, 20 years ago. Uh, so I don't think it's because of some things that people associate with him, like Twitter. I think his success on Twitter, in part, is because he was already famous. Yeah. Uh, he's not a bottom-up phenomenon in that way. Right, right, right. But, but yeah, he's, he's a, but he's definitely uh, a figure from the broadcast television era who, you know, found his moment in a system that, a process and a system that was open and with, there was kind of always this danger. Parties had, we could talk about this, the yep. party seemed to have been managing this new, more unwieldy open system pretty well for a long time. Right. So then I want to take a break and, and then that's what I want to talk about. Okay. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This is the thing. The, the 70s clearly a chaotic time in American politics uh, for a number of reasons, but including in the nominating system. But then for a while, you had the primaries. They were open. Anybody could run in them. You had underdogs and outsiders. But basically, party regulars always one. For the most part, that's true. If you look at the nominations in the 80s and 90s, so my co-authors and I in the party decides what we said was these were the kind of candidates who could have been chosen by a 19th century convention. Uh, they were people who were politically experienced, who were well-known to party elites, who were broadly within their parties. Uh, ideological traditions acceptable to all factions, maybe not so exciting you know, uh, Walter Mondale, Bob Dole, uh, both Presidents Bush, the, these kind of candidates were prevailing. Uh, John Kerry, right, it's kind of war hero who voted for it before he voted against it. This is like totally a 19th century mm -hmm. conventions product in that sense. And so the system seemed to be producing the kind of candidates in the, who, who, who'd come out in the old days. And our argument was that... Um, it, there were certain changes, tweaks to the rules, but the bigger thing was probably that people learned the properties of the new system. Mm -hmm. So they learned you can't be drafted the convention, you can't wait, you can't skip early primaries. Uh, the old logic was don't enter a primary that you're not going to win. Uh, so one of Jimmy Carter's leading opponents that year, Senator Henry Scoop Jackson, left him in open field, not only in Iowa, but in New Hampshire. Uh -huh. uh, he probably would have lost New Hampshire, but he probably would have ensured that Carter also didn't win mm -hmm. by splitting moderate vote. And uh, it would have been helpful, but he didn't understand the system's new logic. So by the 80s, people have figured out the old logic of your party elite is play your cards close to your vest. You don't want to back a loser, so you don't want to jump too early. Mm -hmm. um, wait till you see the lay of the land. Now, then people realize if we don't get behind our favorite candidate early— He's not going to be nominated. So right. you see in the period that we and 
others have called the invisible primary. And the year before the election, people rushing to endorse a candidate, raise money for that candidate, help that candidate build an organization. So you see that, for example, spring of 1999, there's a pilgrimage of all these Republicans to Austin, where uh, Governor George W. Bush is seen as a strong candidate. And to the extent that he raises a huge amount of money and other Republican candidates drop out in 1999 before uh, the first votes uh, were cast because he's getting all the support from the party. He's raising all the money. And you see in parallel to broadcast television, nightly news, which doesn't have a lot of time and, and just shows people, you see sort of insider media, right? The, the hotline or now Politico. Yeah. And they have lots of stories about like which operatives are signing on with who. and right. like the Shrum primary. Right. And, well, and, yeah. and, and, and bundlers, yes. right? And they say yes. like, okay, all the, the, the old bundlers, they're all for George W. Bush, right? right. Which signifies like the money is helpful, mm-hmm. but also it's, a, it's coordination in action. Right, that like we, right. Can, we can start to see that people have decided right. that there's a bunch of Republican governors in the late 90s yeah. who are popular in their home states. Yes. But that if you are of the mindset that what we ought to do is get one of these popular governors yeah. and run them and distance ourselves a little bit from the congressional party, yeah. that like Bush is he's the guy. Yeah, and that that process of kind of intra-party deliberation plays itself out really in 1998 and 1999, uh, and it structures the choices that the voters actually even get in the primaries. So uh, McCain, people may remember, challenges uh, Bush, but uh, people who are well-known, like Elizabeth Dole, Dan Quayle, their campaign started and ended uh, in 1999, well before the primaries. And that happened to, to greater and lesser degrees in both parties. Mm-hmm. P- candidates, uh, the old phrase was testing the waters. Uh-huh. You know, they test the waters. They see that people are not interested in them and are not going to raise money for them and are not going to endorse them and are not going to be active in their campaign. They say, okay, maybe I won't declare my candidacy. And a lot of that happens. And traditionally, as you said, it's either not covered or it was covered in a very insidery way that most voters were never uh, noticing. Right. So there was never a question of like George W. Bush and Tommy Thompson are like on a stage going at it. No. Right. That there was a, like the old convention and in part because with modern technology, right, you don't need to like all go to Chicago. Right. For power brokers to have conversations with each other in which they say, somebody might say, hey, Wisconsin's more of a swing state than Texas. Right. But somebody else is like, well, he was the president and he's got the, the president's son, yeah. and blah, 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 blah. He speaks so they, Spanish. Right. So they, they work out some kind of reason why yeah. it's Bush rather than Thompson, even though I'm, I was in college at the time, like me yeah. sitting in my dorm. Yes. I was like, well, this other guy's yes. sort of more impressive in terms of what That's he's true. actually achieved and, and blah, 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 blah. But like it it just, it never came to that. And so instead you get, by the time people vote, it's John McCain and he's running this like anti-party right. candidacy. Right. So you get to choose Bush or McCain, yeah. but like McCain, the NRA, the Christian Coalition, like everybody's saying like, don't vote for McCain. Right. And McCain is saying like, I'm fighting the, the Death Star, right. which if you're, a Democrat, it makes John McCain look very exciting. Or a member of the media. Right. His actual base, as yeah. uh, John Stewart used to <laughs> Right. It was kind of awesome, but it's yeah. like, if you're a normal Republican, 
Right. Because the one guy is like, my dad was president. Yeah. And the other guy is like, actually, the Republican Party is evil. Yeah. So who are you going to vote for? Right? That's right. No, that, that's right. And uh, similarly, Al Gore, um, you know, lined up all the forces very much in, in 2000. And there were many, he was challenged by Bill Bradley, but many people who were interested in running, John Kerry, Dick Gephardt, um, Jesse Jackson, Paul Wellstone, um, they didn't actually run right. because they saw that it looked hopeless, that uh, all the stars were aligning for for Gore. And so in 2000, you have, uh, uh, this is the last time this really happened, you have two candidates who were totally seen, you know, as the product of their party establishment in both sides. They ran in primaries. Right. I mean, there was a voters, voters uh, weighed in. Uh, Gore won all of them, every state. Uh, but... Uh, Bradley did raise a lot of money, and he was well-known. He had been a basketball star. But um, McCain won a few primaries, New Hampshire primary. But the party rallied uh, to Bush, uh, and uh, and he prevailed. Um, so it seemed like for many years the uh, system was really more open, but that um, the output wasn't so different. After the kind of messy contest in the 70s, it seems like po- political actors had adjusted, had understood the properties of the new system. Uh, and then there were kind of two ways you could read yeah. Obama and Hillary in 2008, yeah. right? Because on the one hand, she's clearly yeah. the better known For sure. candidate. She's uh, – her husband was president recently. Uh, the, the Clintons, you know, more broadly were sort of powerful in party networks at that time. Obama's this young guy. Right. There are questions about his electability, blah, blah, blah. But he has a ton of support from – influential congressional Democrats. He did. I mean, he was, he became a star even before he became a senator because he was given the opportunity to be the keynote speaker at the 2004 Democratic Convention. Uh, He raised money. He's uh, really remarkable. This, he's the, he, he bridged all these divides in the Democratic Party, the support of uh, people often talk about the wine track, mm-hmm. college-educated white voters, and African-American voters who usually don't line up for the same candidate in the primary. He raised money and small donations on the web, which is a new phenomenon we should talk about uh, that's disrupted the process. Right. But he also got traditional Democratic big bundlers and donors, famously David Geffen, uh, the entertainment mogul, and others to raise a lot of money for him the old-fashioned way. Uh, and he had lots of support. Tom Daschle was supporting him. We now know, it wasn't reported at the time, but we now know that privately he was encouraged to run by Reed and uh, Schumer mm-hmm. um, because they actually thought Hillary had electability problems. Right. So, yes. And there was a classic insidery thing where Nancy Pelosi was not going to endorse because right. she was the Speaker of the House. Right. But George Miller endorsed Obama. Yes. And while nobody... No real person could possibly <laughs> care about this. It was conveyed yes. to the media yes. that this meant Absolutely. that Nancy Pelosi preferred Obama. Absolutely, no. That was a, that was the signal. And so uh, Obama had had less had fewer endorsements than Hillary Clinton for sure, and he was the underdog for sure. But he was not a threat to the and, and as his presidency, I think, bore out. He was not a threat to kind of Democratic Party establishment the way McCain was to the GOP in 2000, or certainly the way Trump uh, was. Uh, he was uh, a young up-and-comer, and some people thought it was too soon for him or, you know. Um, but he, yes, he had significant support from uh, party establishment, party elite. Uh, and then, you know, of course, um, Hillary Clinton, you know, wound up as the secretary of state. So it was not uh, a debacle. Uh, we actually, at the time, writing Party Decides and came out that at the end of that year, we thought McCain 
was a messier case uh-huh. in the in 2008 in that in 2000 he had been the anti-party guy. Yeah, By yeah, 2008 yeah. he had done a lot to try and build bridges to try and uh, you know he he went to Jerry Falwell's university and accepted an honorary degree after having denounced him as an agent of intolerance. And, and, and he changed his position on on taxes, which is an, another one of your books yeah. about uh, yeah. pe- people changing their their stances, which always. Always earns you like some scolding articles, right? But like basically works. It totally is the way to go, uh, right? Because uh, you know your old position tends to be discounted if the interest groups that like your new position vouch for you. Um, you know, it, it it seems to work out. So McCain did what he could uh, during the latter part of the Bush administration to kind of smooth things over with the party. Uh, and that was helpful, but he certainly there were doubts. There was kind of residual right. doubts about him. So we actually thought he was a problematic case, but you know it pales. He very much pales by comparison to to Trump. Trump. And and now you have. I mean, it it seems not only is Trump president, but you have a strong Sanders candidacy in twenty twenty sixteen. That yeah. you know he didn't come that close to winning, but but he wouldn't go away. Right. right. He won a lot of votes. He won. He, he he raised as much money, I think, as Hillary Clinton, which is remarkable. And th- here we have to talk about changes in technology. Yeah, so is this the Internet? Yes. Fundamentally changes, changes, in te- changes in technology. Um, the first time we really see this, I think, is uh, 2004, the Howard Dean campaign, mm-hmm. also a Vermont political figure. Um, um Dean, there wasn't actually yet social media, but the web existed. Mm-hmm. And I guess you were an early blogger, so you know about these things. <laughs> yes, I remember the blogs. The blogs, they were a thing. Blogs and Howard Dean was yeah. big. So, yeah. So um, Dean uh, became well-known by being the loudest anti-war candidate, uh, and he raised a ton of money, uh, much of it online and small donations. And from that, with that treasury, he ran a lot of ads in Iowa when other candidates couldn't afford to. He became the Iowa polling leader. He got national news coverage based on his Iowa polling numbers. He became the national polling leader. It all crashed. He crashed and burned. His entire arc was before Iowa. Uh And that would not have been possible. You know, in the early days of the new system, Jimmy Carter had to sneak up on people in Iowa and had to win Iowa. Uh, Gary Hart in 1984 had to finish a surprising second in Iowa to break through to the public through the media. By 2004, Dean can, or 2003 really, Dean can do this. And Bernie Sanders, um, you know, in the beginning of 2015, as he said, he deferred to Elizabeth Warren, who was better known. Had she run, he wouldn't have run. Nobody knew who he was. Right. Over the course of 2015, by the fall debate, which was in September, the first debate, he was clearly the leading challenger to Hillary Clinton. He was clearly known by many voters already, and uh, he raised a ton of money, mostly in small donations. In the old days, you had to people had to write checks, they had to address envelopes, they had to you know stamp the snail mail. Um, Far fewer people would do that. In 1992, Jerry Brown was running. There have been many phases of Jerry Brown, many avatars. <laughs> um, and he was running then because he couldn't. He was a loser. And he couldn't get party establishment support. Yep. So he doesn't make that into a virtue. So he I'm has not, this 1-800 number. Yes. Right. I'm not taking your big money because you're not going to get any big money. And so I'm not uh, – yes – 
call my 1-800 number. Operators are standing by to take your credit card number. Now that seems very clunky and backward, but that was modern then. And now with, uh, you know, online and texting and all, uh, 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 social media and everything, a candidate can raise money and also get his or her message across much more quickly to many more people uh, well before the Iowa caucuses. And that has destabilized the process that has enabled these candidates to arise. I mean, Sanders is the fundraising leader this time, unless you count um, people who write themselves checks, Bloomberg, yeah. <laughs> like Bloomberg and Steyer. Um, but among people who are relying on contributions, he's clearly, you know, the leader, and uh, that uh, is a, a result of technological change. I think as much as much as anything else. Oh, the, 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 I mean, the other thing I would say about Sanders in 2016 is that, you know, he he loses. Yeah. By, getting fewer votes that, than Hillary. But if you look at sort of individual states, right, the outcomes in the different states are very predictable based on the demographics of that state. True. And so a state like Washington, where there are very few African-Americans in, right. in Washington state, he wins handily, even though all of the Washington state elected officials are endorsing yeah. Hillary. And so... The the endorsements leader, like the party's candidate, wins the nomination. Right. But when you look at it on a micro level, right. it doesn't – it's not clear that the establishment is actually efficacious as opposed to just Sanders' ideology. Like yeah. many Democrats liked it, but most of them didn't. Yeah, I mean, so what in the book we found that national endorsements, you know, just aggregating mm-hmm. at the national level, uh, endorsements were predictive of candidate success – controlling for both their polling numbers and their fundraising. Right. We also found that in Iowa, uh, where there were many, you know, many endorsements because yeah, candidates yeah. are so active there, endorsements were also predictive. We did not find that for New Hampshire to the same degree. And, you know, for later states, we focused on uh, endorsements that were given before Iowa because the idea is that they're not sort of resulting from, right. they're not reacting to voters. Um, and we didn't have as many we couldn't find reliable state-level effects in later states like you're talking about. We didn't have as many. I think that um, you can you can look at that and you can say her support was, right, demographically based and ideologically based and not necessarily. I mean, she certainly fits the paradigm. Uh, when you look at these states, yeah. I mean, there also in 2008, there were clear demographic differences between Obama and right. Clinton supporters and also process, right? She, both of her runs, she did poorly in caucus states mm-hmm. and she did better in uh, primaries, in primary states. Right. And we've seen that in both parties, you know, Trump did poorly in caucuses, yeah. uh, except Nevada. That was the one, I think. Uh, so the, 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 the rules still matter. The demographics of a state definitely matter. Um, and yes, you can, any case you can look at various ways. So I guess like, you know, I mean, one big question is like, is this, is this bad that we are are moving seemingly back to a more somewhat chaotic, more open system? Is it, is it, do you think likely to prove transitional that, you know, technology changes, so things change, yeah. but, but like all the players in the game get to get to move again. That's interesting. I, I, traditionally, too, I mean, if we, if we look over the, the, the stretch of American history, mm-hmm. a couple things are clear. People do adapt to new rules and new incentives, uh, and they adjust their strategies. That happened in the 80s. We saw that. Um, that. But the over the long stretch of American history, the process has become more open and more participatory. It hasn't been rolled back in serious ways. 
And uh, I do think parties are struggling now. I mean, sometimes a party can struggle and a process can be suboptimal and the candidate that emerges can be suboptimal and they can still win. Sure. <laughs> they can get, you know, luck Luck is a, a force in the universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I do think that it's a problematic process in some ways uh, for parties. It's more difficult for them to coordinate. It's more difficult for them to screen out candidates um, who have really no loyalty to the party, whose ability to work uh, in coordination with other actors in the party and to govern effectively is in question. So I think since we have a system that our electoral rules generate to parties, the parties play a central role in governance. And uh, if they can't uh, choose a candidate, which is an essential role of a party, if they can't do that effectively, I think it is a problem. And it seems like, I mean, it seems like the parties as institutions are not viewed by the broad public as legitimate in a certain kind of yeah. way, right? I mean, that that to say, um, you, you wouldn't say on a debate, like Joe Biden wouldn't say in a debate, one good thing about me is that the party establishment thinks I'm a lot better right. than you guys, right? That's, like it may be a strength of his candidacy yes. that the establishment is behind him, but it's not something you would you would Usually sort of not. highlight in that kind of Usually way. not. One time he said, I have the most endorsements and everyone loves me. But mostly that <laughs> would be seen as a kind of too crude and too – he doesn't – you don't want to be seen as as this kind of this too, too much of an establishment figure because of what you said is right. Parties are not loved as institutions. And it's kind of an irony because we're more polarized than ever. And people are – voters are in fact quite partisan. Right. They don't split their tickets. They vote for the same party year after year. But their self-concept in many cases is a spurious one that they're independent. Uh, and we know when you ask them a follow-up question, do you lean to one party or the other? Most of them will lean to one party or the other and then their behavior reflects that and their attitudes reflect that. But yeah, Parties as institutions are not loved. Institutions in general in America, there's been a great decay in trust mm -hmm. of almost all institutions. Uh, and so that makes it difficult, and there is a, leg a legitimacy issue. So, for example, in the early 80s, one of the responses to the Carter and McGovern nominations was the creation of the so-called superdelegates, mm -hmm. allowing party, uh, you know, elected officials or members of the Democratic National Committee to vote in conventions as uh, free agents to right. vote for who they think the best candidate would be. Traditionally, people like this would have just been delegates because they were active in their state party and they would have gone yeah, there. Yeah. Now, they have never really made a big difference. And I think it's very questionable whether they could. Um, like, I do not think, we don't know, but I do not think they would have saved Hillary Clinton from uh, – Bernie Sanders surging in 2016. Uh -huh. I think because they are elected officials themselves in most cases. Mm -hmm. And I think they would have been both fearful that that would seem too heavy handed and would hurt the party. And also they would care, they would fear for their own careers. Well, and the, I think the, the speed with which once Sanders complained about that, yeah. they changed the rules. It, it indicates that they never had an intention of really using them, right? I, I mean, I think you, in the '80s, people remember the old system, right. and they maybe thought it could work. So I, I, I don't. I mean, in 2016. Oh, you know, right, in that, 2016, that if, if if the superdelegates had come out of that process saying, "Oh, it's too bad," you know, we weren't able to really stick it to Bernie yeah. there, right? It was like when Bernie made a big stink. Yeah, they were like, "Fine, yeah, we'll just, I, I we'll think, just not have superdelegates." I, I think there are still scenarios where you know, if a, if a, a prospective nominee's plane crashes, uh, they might play an important role. Uh -huh. um, 
under the new rules that you're alluding to, uh, the, the, the superdelegates can only step in on the second uh, second ballot. Right. Uh, and so it's not clear, though, whether they would have, just to give you an example, uh, many people view Elizabeth Warren as sort of a compromise in factional terms between Sanders and Biden. Right? right, she's progressive, but maybe doesn't doesn't call herself a socialist. Says she's a Democrat, um, has better relationship with uh, leading Democrats than Sanders. Okay, but would it be legitimate if she ha- goes into the convention with, let's say, the third largest number of delegates, uh-huh. for uh, her to be nominated right. for on the second or the third ballot for super delegates to turn to her for some of the delegates who are pledged to maybe right. Biden or whoever to go to her? We don't know. Right. Nobody knows, but, but but people, if you think over that scenario, it's a messy one. And in a different era, it would have been seen as completely normal and reasonable. And in some other countries, it still would be. But now we don't know. Right. We don't know. People might be okay with that. Their partisanship might be so strong, it might, over an anti-Trump feeling, it might overcome any bad feelings about that. But a lot of people today, I think, would say, what, you know, Bernie or, or Biden won the most votes, won the most, and then they nominate someone else. Is this okay? For most American history, business as usual, totally normal. Right. Uh, and uh, so, so, so the rules matter, but but also people's expectations matter and they constrain or or politicians sense of people's expectations and that constrains I think that constrains them significantly. I, 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 people used to talk about superdelegates and Ob- uh, Clinton over Obama. Mm-hmm. That definitely was not going to happen. And I don't think it would have happened even vis-a-vis Sanders, who certainly was more of a threat to the party and, establishment. And I think you, you raise an interesting question, right? Because on paper, you know, if you imagine no majority, yeah. contested convention, the superdelegates come in. Right? Yeah. It, it seems like a sensible, traditional American thing to do would be to steer it yes. to neither Bernie nor Biden, yes. but to one of the people who's between them. Yeah. But that also feels very out of step with That's right. the sort of plurality norms that operate in most of American electoral politics. People would say, okay, either the guy who finished first yeah. needs to win. Or maybe if everyone bandwagons to the guy who finished second. But there's no way you no. can just, like, do a deal yeah. and some other person comes And it, it did such a deal, we should say, might be the best thing, you know, in, in, you know, from many perspectives. Right. I'm not and I'm not endorsing <laughs> or talking about any particular candidate. I just tried to give a scenario Well, because outside current. of politics, right, I mean, if we're having a meeting, I, I don't know how you guys do your faculty meetings, but, you know— when you're not talking too, too often. when you're not talking about elections, yeah. it's normal when people in an organization disagree to end up picking a third option right. between the two, right? Sometimes it's you go to the mattresses right. and you're like, nope, like either I'm gonna win or I'm gonna lose. But right. normally in like office politics, yeah. people People don't like, want to risk it all and lose it all, right? So you, you come up with compromises. You like, say, uh, New York Times is going to endorse two candidates right. simultaneously. Right, people. Right? The pizza the pizza topping that is most broadly palatable. Yeah. But we'll, we'll know. Yeah, no. And this may, look, nobody knows what's go, what's going to happen. But, uh, you know, and traditionally a convention was the site for this kind of a compromise. But the way our system evolved, um, it it actually happened earlier in the invisible primaries in, this, in the 80s and 90s. And so if it has, now, in this case, if we're talking about this, which is not, I'm not predicting this at all, but but just to talk about yeah. the properties of the system, this this in theory could happen 
in the weeks before the convention, mm-hmm. right? After there's weeks between the primaries ending and the convention. And unlike the old days, everyone now will know how many delegates each candidate has. Sure. <laughs> so that's that's a big difference from the 19th and early 20th century where that was rather murky. No, but I mean, yeah, the point isn't to say there's going to be a contested convention and that someone is going to win on the third ballot and the superdelegates are going to do this or that. That's not, but but I, I was trying to raise the topic of you know, are we okay with this? Do is do parties have enough space in our political system to pull off a maneuver like this? Would voters tolerate it? Again, maybe because of partisanship, maybe anti-Trump feeling would be the salve and would kind of allow this. Uh-huh. But they do worry about this. And as I say, like, I don't think there was so much concern by the Sanders people about superdelegates in 2016, you know, his, uh, but I, I just don't think that they, they're not Mayor Daley. Right. You know, they, they, they're very cautious right. about doing this. And it would be an extreme for them to get to a point uh, where they did that. It would, it would be, uh, it would be difficult. And, and I think, and I think that's, I think that's right. And I think that really it's like the norms lead the rules. Yes. Almost, right? That the, the superdelegates are disempowered on the first ballot. Yeah. Not not because there was a huge drag down fight about it, but because once people started talking about it, right. they realized yeah. that there was no way. They would not. No, they were that only, was going to fly. No, they would only feel empowered, whatever the formal rules stated. Mm-hmm. They would only feel empowered to do this in kind of extreme situation. Right. And you can imagine such a situation, but not not right away and not just the heavy handed in a kind of heavy handed mayor daily way. That would not be acceptable to people It's today. interesting, though, because the sort of crisis of 68 yeah. did, as you said, like, it emerged out of a weird situation. Yeah, it's a confluence it, of events. Right. It was a perfect storm. Right. It, it wasn't just the case that, like, you know, the establishment, you know, Biden gets fewer votes than Sanders, yeah. and but the bosses put him in anyway, right? Yeah. It was like, actually, the president stepped down, one of the leading candidates was dead, yes. the other guy wasn't in the primaries at all, but everyone knew he was running. Like, yes. it, it was, it, there's a kind of a, a, a hard cases make bad law potential Absolutely, there, that, absolutely. I, I think the old system could have staggered on for a few more cycles right. if things weren't uh, it's, it weren't so messy then, the, you know, uh, and the war hadn't, you know, been there. I mean, uh, if you look at the 1968 uh, on the Republican side, just uh, it was much more traditional and people were fine with that. Like pe- Ronald Reagan was actually a candidate who never admitted that he was a candidate. Uh-huh. The, he went through the whole process like that. He was a favorite son uh, in California. People were running campaigns for him in states. He wasn't going and campaigning. He wasn't saying he was a candidate. He was trying to preserve deniability. Very old-fashioned. Uh-huh. And it didn't work but um, it, because he was seen as too far to the right and Nixon was well-established. But the old ways still seemed to have some life in them, you know, uh, as late as 68. And I think, yes, had it not been for all these factors, the president who withdraws, the, the war that tears the party apart, the leading candidate, the leading rival who's assassinated, Fascinated. Yeah, I think the system, uh, it was already very creaky. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, it's like there's always a long-term confluence, long-term uh, trends, and then there's a short-term, there's some incident. So, I mean, you know, students learn about the assassination of Franz Ferdinand uh-huh. and, you know, World War One starts. Right. Many leaders have been assassinated without a world war sure. <laughs> resulting. But circumstances were such that any spark 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Could have set it off. And there were a couple of crises before that that where war had been averted. And if it hadn't been Franz Ferdinand, it would have been somewhat something else in a year or two. Mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. And so it's it's kind of like that. The system was creaky. The system was had declining legitimacy. The pillars of it were were weaker and weaker. And, and then um, all these factors came into play in a surprising way. All right. Uh, we've been talking for a while, uh, but before I let you go, I, I like to ask, uh, is there is there anything uh, you, you wish I'd asked about, uh, anything we, we should have covered on here? Well, one thing we could uh, talk about is, are there alternatives? Yeah. Are, there, are there reforms to the reforms uh, that could be made? Yeah. I mean, D- David Leonhardt in the New York Times wrote this uh, cranky column uh, saying the Democratic uh, primary was like a disaster. We had Andrew Yang on the debate and yeah. no Steve Bullock. And I I both, I, I sort of share the view that there's something a little crazy about it, but yeah. I thought you made a good point that like, it's not obvious what alternate system no. you would do. Like, there's just a lot of people who like Andrew Yang yeah. and nobody cares about Steve Bullock. No, that's right. And the Steve Bullock seemed to be like one of these interchangeable, moderate white guys who might've been a sensible nominee but, you know, uh, as long as Joe Biden is there, he's not going to get that much traction. Um, and he's, by the way, somebody who maybe on the 30th ballot of a convention, you know, in 1920 right. could have come through. I I think that the DNC gets a bad rap for these debates. And I think the debates which have become more much more central. Uh, they didn't used to be so many. So they, <laughs> And they didn't used to come in the year before the election, right? right? So this is a part of the continuing evolution of the process. I think they made a reasonable decision uh, to these criteria could be tweaked. You could, uh, I, I don't think the small donor uh, criterion has turned out to be useful. It's been gamed by people like right. Tom Steyer, you know, spend 20 million to raise 1 million or you know, whatever it is to rate, get these small donors. But um, the polling numbers using those as criteria, look, state polls, national polls, I thought that was reasonable. Uh, if people would tolerate this, one other uh if you want to give the party elite some small gatekeeping role, which they have in many other countries, you know, in, uh-huh. in, so so in the UK, there's going to be a primary for the leadership of the Labour Party in, I think, March. Right. The rules of the party uh, now are you need to be sponsored by about 20 members of parliament mm-hmm. or 10% of the caucus, whatever it is, and local party organizations, a certain number need to get behind you. Right. Uh, and that does keep them from having 25 candidates right. or whatever the Democrats have. Oh, no, so that, that would keep like a Yang That would keep a, a Yang or, or a Steyer and a Marion Williamson out. I think they've been pretty harmless, actually, but right. they do offend a lot of political observers. <laughs> Their mere presence seems yes. unserious and like a distraction. So those people would be, would be screened out. And more seriously, um, depending on how stringent those requirements are, I think they also would have screened out, they might have screened out Trump uh-huh. Uh, in 2015, it depends if you if you allow another way to get on stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in 20, you know, they could have screened out even Sanders if they were too stringent. I think people would have would have probably not wanted that. That would have looked too much like a coronation. Right. I think you would have. Re- yeah. But I mean, I, I mean and, and that's how Jeremy Corbyn became that's the exactly Labour Party leader was, was MPs who didn't actually want him to be leader right. felt that if he wanted a shot at it that the voters deserve the choice and they were just confident he would lose. Yes, famous last words. Right. That's right. That's right. But, they were they wanted to make sure the people felt included, which of course the Democratic Party is, you know, all about. Um and that's right. But I mean I think you you might be able to uh, justify something like this, which would screen out a Williamson, as you say, or a Yang. 
uh, and but still allow several candidates uh, on on the stage. Um, you know, in, it, it's a more serious thing for the Labour Party because those candidates don't even get on the ballot right. if they don't get a certain amount of. And, and I think the French, some of the French political parties that recently experimented with primaries, also required yeah. some sponsorship yeah. for the nomination. It would be. I, I don't know if the, we the parties have legitimacy that would to do that, but I think that that would be a useful reform to consider. Uh, it certainly would. It still would not. It would not be. You know, the bosses uh, nominating somebody in smoke filled room. They'd still have to go win votes in primaries. I feel but, like the actual issue though that people have is that like a lot of people like me, yeah. a lot of columnists, yeah. think that someone with roughly Joe Biden's current policy positions should yeah. be the nominee, yes. but that it shouldn't be Joe Biden. And they are just frustrated that, yes. you know, so there are people like Bullock who didn't make it onto the debate stage. Booker at some point dropped off. Yeah. But like Amy Klobuchar right. is still up there. The last the last hope of the commentariat. Right. And the fact is, like, the electorate just doesn't share our opinion. So far. That Joe Biden is a poor that's carrier right. of the Joe Biden message. Right. No, I, I think I, I think that's right. And I do think that w- because the process is, w- one thing to say about that is because the process is so sprawling now, it's so wide open, it's very hard for people to coordinate. A, and in a smoke-filled room, there's maybe 10, 15 people. Yeah. And uh, now, you know, if you're a political actor, you want to you back a winner. And to, to to the idea that you're going to stick your neck out for Steve Bullock or Michael Bennett when Joe Biden is there, when Joe Biden is polling well, mm-hmm. it's risky and it's hard to, you know, especially because there might be six of these people. Do you go with Klobuchar? Do you go with uh, Bennett? Do you go with Bullock? Uh, do you go with maybe Jay Inslee? Uh, right. who, you know, and, and in that case, what we talk about, we borrow this concept from Thomas Schelling. He talked about focal points, you know, that people tend to coordinate on kind of a visible option. Whether When you, when you have to meet a friend, you know, uh, or meet someone you don't know, people, his his, his story was you'd go to a landmark. Yep. Someone said, and, and so somebody like Joe Biden, he is a focal point. And even in the kind of heyday of the party decides, if you look at who the party elites were able to coordinate on, uh, it was almost always somebody who was very obvious. Hillary Clinton in 2016, Bob Dole, Walter Mondale, the former vice president, Al Gore, Bob Bob Dole, um, George W. Bush, a president's son. The one actual case— Bill Clinton. Yes. Seems the one, like the exception to that, right? Somebody they found who, a talent. Right. Somebody who a normal person, just a random Democrat Didn't know. living outside of the South, would not be like the governor of Arkansas. No. He was unknown, largely unknown. He had given a speech at the 88 Democratic Convention that actually had gone badly. He spoke too long, and the greatest applause was when he said, in conclusion. And he did that. He did the—you <laughs> You can find it on YouTube, the 1984 State of the Union response he oh, did. Yeah? And it's like one of the worst things right. you'll, you'll ever but, see. But the fact that because his problem was indiscipline and going too long— the problem, but but the fact that he was given those opportunities yeah. showed that people saw him as a rising star and as a talent. And he is the one case where they were able to rally around someone who was not well known to the public. And I think it's difficult. But that was because there wasn't anyone else who was really well known uh-huh. and broadly supported. Uh, I mentioned Jerry Brown was running then. He was a loose cannon. He wasn't uh, seen as acceptable to many people. Right. There was no equivalent of a vice president of a Joe Biden president floating spouse. floating around a Joe Biden or and Hillary Mary Clinton. Cuomo didn't 
run. Mario Cuomo did not run. Uh, and so, and many of the A-list Democrats were deterred because George H.W. Bush was seen as, you know, the, the victor of Desert Storm, you know, the great war leader who couldn't put 90% approval, who couldn't be defeated. Right. Uh, so, but... Uh, yeah, so it is difficult. That's right. I think I think it is. It's, it's for hard. A party. To, it's hard to elevate. It's hard right? to elevate, and it's hard to elevate one out of several plausible kind of younger, in this case, maybe moderate uh, people who maybe have swing state appeal. When there is this well-known figure who certainly has his flaws, but still has significant support and is not going anywhere. Right. And for a long time, that was just assumed. Well, he's going to collapse, and you know that hadn't had not happened, and so there hasn't been the opening right. for you know for Booker or for these other people that were. That we're talking Makes about. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, it just goes to show vice presidential selections, which it's really making, are an area where party elites have a lot of influence, yes. matter. Well, that a matters. Lot. And by the way, that's a big historic change. Uh, Historically, the vice presidency wasn't a launching pad. Right. Uh, uh, but in the me- modern media era where they are visible figures, yeah. it became one much more. In the old days, only uh, if the president died, did right. the vice president succeed? And 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 typically, often a president running for a second term would dump the vice presidential candidate because circumstances would dictate somebody else, and it was no great trauma. Right. Today, that would be a very big deal. So yes, the vice presidency uh, has grown because of the media. It, it, it is a better launching pad uh, than it used to be. And Biden definitely, I mean, look, it's 2008 presidential campaign and this one, whatever <laughs> happens to him, sure. there's no comparison. Right. And it's, it's not like he is intrinsic quality of no, incredible I mean, no. charisma. It's that now he's the former vice president. Yes. It's not so much like, well, at 77, he's so much sure. better than he was. He's at finally 65. hit his stride. <laughs> no, it's that he got this platform and the association with Barack Obama is of course really important. Uh, so, so yeah, that's, that's a, a new result of the new system. And yeah, party elites are still important in the selection of an approval of uh, vice presidential candidates. And it matters some, um, you know, uh, Gore, uh, McCain wanted to choose Joe Lieberman. That was not acceptable. Right. Uh, you know, um, people who, part of the reason people change their position on issues to be acceptable to all the factions in the party. Uh, George H.W. Bush wanted to choose Alan Simpson. People say he was pro-choice. Mm-hmm. Not possible. Yep. You know, uh, so, uh, so yeah, that uh, parties, parties are still relevant in that sense. All right, fantastic. Uh, David Carroll, University of Maryland, uh, thank you so much. Uh, check out the book, uh, Red, Green, Blue, and, uh, you know, thank you. Uh, thanks to Malachi Brodus, our engineer, Jackson Bierfeld, our producer, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply.